This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This week on Hangar Talk, it got harder and then a little easier to fly to the Bahamas. And supply chain woes continue for general aviation pilots and owners. Bad news, a tragedy from the May Day Stole event. Better news from eBay's Bombardier unveils an 8,000 nautical mile global 8,000 jet. And we're wearing sunglasses because it's Top Gun Maverick. Ian, are you ready to do some Hangar Talk? Let's do it, David. From AOPA, your freedom to fly. This is Hangar Talk. The 1056 turn right heading 130, contact final 132.4. Turn right, sky back. With your hosts, Ian Twombly and David Tulitz. This is Hangar Talk. Welcome to Hangar Talk. Uh, very special episode 150, believe it or not. Also, our first episode on YouTube. So, if you are a regular Hangar Talk listener, Please check us out on YouTube. Just go there, search AOPA. We'll be there in the uh, AOPA roll-up, or in the Hangar Talk roll-up, I should say. And if you're finding us on YouTube, please check out the podcast. AOPA.org slash Hangar Talk, and you can find me, David Tulis, and Ian. You can introduce yourself. Yep, Ian Twombly. Also, our guest this week, really special. We talked about Top Gun Maverick. We'll we'll get into more of that a little bit later. But the guest is Kevin LaRosa. Kevin is a super cool dude. Um, he's got every pilot's dream job, I think, which is he's an aerial coordinator in Hollywood, and he coordinated, his company coordinated all of the flying sequences for Top Gun Maverick. It took, obviously, months and months of planning and execution. And we've got a really lengthy interview, actually, with him talking about how it works, all the preparation they went through, how they scouted locations, all that kind of stuff. It's very cool. Okay, David, so the news, the Bahamas, it, this happened so fast that you might have missed it. Basically, the Bahamas, with very little notice, put in this new requirement called click to clear. And what it did was it's just another entry requirement. It went from into customs. Yep, yeah, from customs. That's right. Went into effect May 30th. But thanks to a letter from AOP's Mark Baker and some other pressure, the Bahamas has rolled that back now. They are delaying implementation so that we can all kind of work through the bugs get an education effort going, and make going to the Bahamas easy again. And as of May 31st, Mark Baker did receive communication from the acting controller of the Bahamas Customs Office that called for a delay. And so uh, we like the Bahamas. We publish a Bahamas guide. Listen, Ian, you can buy that guide at our Pilot Gear store, and I want to say it's $39.95. And you and I both worked on the background for that guide. We did a lot of editing for that, and this is the 42nd edition. You can also get it via app, too. I might remind folks. But, yeah, easy, easier now to get to the Bahamas. Uh, temporarily, it looked like it was going to be tricky for a while. Yeah. So we actually did get a report from a pilot who was caught in this, and he had to. He said it took him an hour on the ground with a customs agent to, to work through how to do this. And so I think this is good news for all folks who are going to fly to the Bahamas. So if you hear about click to clear that it has been delayed, we just found out as we recorded this. So good news. And um, we will keep you updated as that moves forward. Yet another reason to be an AOPA member and have, have all the force of AOPA behind you to make sure stuff like this doesn't go unnoticed. Yeah, very true. Okay, David, moving on, the supply chain. Oh, boy, it is, um, it's a rough time to be an airplane owner, I think, in a lot of ways, because obviously with demand the way it is so high, and then supply chain that we're all facing in all facets of life that has absolutely hit aviation. Um, Nikki Britton has a new story that published a couple days ago about this. She goes into some really nice detail. Bottom line is, it, it's tough out there. 
It is. It is. And uh, the impetus for some of this uh, update was the Aircraft Electronics Association, the AEA, published their quarterly report, first quarter for 2022. And the avi- the avionics market is still strong, as is most of general aviation. They were looking at a 4.8% first quarter sales increases over the fourth quarter of 2021, which is pretty significant at the beginning of the year. But the bigger problem was that a lot of the electronics manufacturers, avionics manufacturers like Garmin, and as well, engine and component manufacturers are still hitting huge delays. And it doesn't look like it's going to improve in the near future. So folks who want to buy an airplane like, I really want to get one, you know, but most, <laughs> yeah. of the, most of the ones I'm looking at are going to need some engine work. Yes. And I believe you might have some particularly good insight about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I we have a 172 XP, me and a couple of partners, and we have absolutely had supply chain problems. We, our recent 100-hour oil change, uh, I should say oil change at the 100-hour. We don't change the oil every 100 hours. It's more frequent. But oil change at the 100-hour, no oil filter, just literally could not find it anywhere in the country you're kidding me no no oil filters oh my goodness you can't you can't do a good oil change and oil analysis without breaking that filter open nope so what we did is reuse the filter it's not ideal but we are looking this actually ties into the second piece we're looking for a new engine we have decided to do actually believe it or not we decided to do a factory new engine wasn't necessarily my first choice. I my first choice was a reman. But let me tell you, when we were looking for quotes, it's crazy out there. We we have it's a 172 XP, so it's an IO Continental IO 360. Is that the six cylinder version? Yeah. Okay. So it's it's like I don't want to call it unusual, but it's not the most common engine in the world. And two reputable engine shops wouldn't even touch it. They wouldn't even give an estimate for time. Others were saying six months, and I bet six months is probably more like eight months. Continental Air Power actually, and Continental told us six months for for the new engine, and I'm I'm betting on eight. So wow, um, Ian, it's crazy. It really is crazy out there. Well, you you speak with Mike Bush uh, pretty regularly because mm-hmm. another podcast that we partic- particularly pay attention to is the is the uh, A and P maintenance podcast that you help host. And Mike Bush from Savvy Aviation had some interesting insight as well. Yeah. Even with some Cirruses, they had some, some of the Cirruses are, are, are a couple of years old. They need to get their AmSafe seatbelts yeah, rebuilt. Yeah, AmSafe seatbelt airbags, yeah. Part of yeah. that, part of that ongoing maintenance. And he said that several have reached their life limit. Replacement controllers are backlogged for many months. And that's not an engine or an avionics component, yeah. but that's something a Cirrus pilot and owner would have to deal with. Right. Yeah. Yep. That's right. And Mike says on the podcast, every you know, we often will get questions from owners that say, "Well, my engine's feeling like maybe it's time to overhaul." And every time they say it is the worst time that they've ever seen for overhauls. So if you can delay it, delay it. The other thing here, you know, Nikki talked to a couple of um, avionics manufacturers, and I don't know what the full situation is. I mean, I know Avidine has been advertising that they have product in stock shipping. I don't know if that's across the board on all their models or what, but Garmin, I know in particular, Garmin said, they have a quote in the story, a rep says basically, well, in, mo- in, in most cases, by the time you can get into the shop, because the shops are so busy, by the time you get in the shop, we'll be able to send the gear. Well, I know, I know in many cases I've heard and in, in many types of upgrades that that's not the case, that the shops can't schedule the work because they're waiting for equipment for six months. So it's it's this crazy domino effect that is just impacting everybody. Well, that also could lead to an impact on safety, because if you are looking at some of the more modern avionics and kind of counting on that, say you already have modern avionics in your aircraft, but yet something goes wrong with it. To get a fix or to get another component, your aircraft is either on the ground or you're going to fly without that piece of gear, you know, and that could lead to a safety issue. Yeah, Absolutely. David, speaking of safety issue, not something that we'd love to talk about, accidents, but this one is, I think, particularly poignant. We do talk about stole a fair amount here, um, you know, drag stole, stole drag, I should say. And we know they're, you know, it, it, it is flying to the limit. They're racing. And unfortunately, a competitor did die in a race. You happened to be there. So um, I was hoping you could tell us what happened. Yeah, Ian, I was at the Mayday Stall event, short takeoff and landing, Stall Drag event, should we say, over in um, in Nebraska. 
Now, the first thing that our uh, listeners and viewers ought to realize is that it was too windy to have the drag portion of the of the short takeoff and landing competition. So, the drag portion is um, when uh, competitors uh, line up side by side and they go about 900 feet or so down a runway, land um, above a runway, land, turn around, and come back and race the other way. Well, there's a wind limit for that. You can't go. You don't want to be in a tail drag airplane with a very large quartering tailwind and so there's a, a, a wind limit on that. as a result of the wind limit at mayday stall drag race it was determined that the participants would do a traditional stall short takeoff and landing event so that's with a full pattern basically you take off you do a short takeoff do a full pattern come back around and do a full landing absolutely that's it and thank okay. you for explaining that and so the competitors decided they amongst themselves that they would do that they were there there were some spectators there and you know the folks that are doing this a lot of them have a, a lot of hours they have good experience good backcountry experience and they do like to put on a show I do need to stress that this is not a kind of event that your everyday pilot would want to do without training Kevin Quinn, one of the preeminent stall drag pilots and, and coordinators, had a whole day of training for newbies and for folks with a little bit of, of experience but wanted to own their skills. Because you are at the edge of your airplane's envelope, and you really do need to respect that. So anyway, uh, I, I was uh, there on the start-finish line and uh, photographed Tom Defoe here in his Cessna 140. He has competed in these before. He competed out in... Uh, in the desert before, and he's uh, well-known in that community, and his son was along there, too, for this event. But um, unfortunately, in the fourth heat, he uh, came in and did, a, like, a right... It was right pattern, Ian, and it was uh, a little bit after the base-to-turn maneuver, and then uh, a couple of pilots were in the air, and, and we saw a bit of an S-turn. And I think going low and slow, an S-turn, an airplane that doesn't have a ton of power, you know, that's got an 85-horsepower engine in that Cessna 140. I believe we, we saw the nose lift a little bit, and then the airplane just veered off to the right, and it was just a stall spin for about 400 feet. It's very sad. It's hard to unsee that. You know, I was there on the start-finish line with my cameras. But we did an analysis. Richard McSpadden did an ASI, you know, Safety Institute analysis on that with a couple of tips on what to look for, what to think about, and how to perhaps avoid something like this at these competitions. So uh, it was tragic. It was, like I said, can't quite unsee it in my eyes. I did not get video of the airplane stalling and spinning, but I will never forget seeing that. I, I, it happened so quick. By the time I lifted my camera up, the airplane was already uh, impacting the ground. Hmm. Double tragedy because the pilot's son was there. Yeah, uh, they had awful. done a father-son weekend kind of a thing. Hmm. And the other pilots that participated were, were very remorseful for that. And it just it was something that was just unbelievable. You just... You just never expect. I guess we should we should plan for you know events like this, but you just don't expect it. Yeah, so. yeah, it's very sad. I do think you know there were, there were a couple of editorials after this happened about maybe it's time to. I think one was like maybe it's time for the FAA to get involved. I mean, I think they have been involved obviously because they sanctioned these things. They were they were sitting on a golf cart right behind me for exactly. FAA officials who I got to chat with and know and. They were on the money. They were looking at it. They helped referee the event, if you would, you know. Yeah, these things are, yeah, they're sanctioned events in that sense. Right. Absolutely. People don't just go out and, you know, be cowboys. So, yeah, I, I it'll be interesting. I mean, maybe there'll be some, hopefully they'll learn whether it's event procedures, additional training before a competitor can go out, that sort of thing. Because these, obviously, they need to keep this, these events as safe as possible, so... Maybe there, are, maybe there ought to be like a, a different, like a, or there kind of already are two or three different classes, yeah. different classes, but maybe there ought to be a separate competition for maybe, I don't know, rookie pilots, uh, if you will. Mm, that's a good and point. so that they don't have, have to feel the pressure. Maybe you need X number of events before you, you join, you know, heat number one, yeah. for, for, for instance, or something like that. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And then also um, slower airplanes and faster airplanes should, 
probably should not be mixed up. You should have the slow airplanes together and the fast airplanes together. And by slow and fast, we're not talking like super right. yeah, differences. It's all relative, speed. right? Yeah. Right, yeah, exactly. right. But some airplanes are capable of landing at, you know, 30, 35 miles an hour, yes. not knots. And some need like 50, you know, 45, 50. And so just that little bit could jam you up. And you don't want to do an S-turn, a slow S-turn when you're on short final, even even here at Frederick or wherever you're flying. And uh, controllers sometimes ask you to do that if you're at a at a controlled field. And the answer might might should be no, yeah, unable. unable. That's right. You know? Yep, absolutely. Right. Very good point. Hey, some better news. Look into the future. Bombardier, always, you know, button heads with the Gulfstream. They're, they're, they're two Titans competing against each other. And now... With eBase, which just happened over in Europe, Bombardier unveiled the Global 8000, which means 8,000 nautical miles, of course. Aptly um, named. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. And it will be the fastest, farthest reaching, I should say, the the jet with the longest range civilian jet ever when it comes out in a couple of years. Pretty incredible stuff. It is incredible. Now, the European Business Aviation Convention and Exhibition, which is eBase, mm-hmm. this is where this Global 8000 was unveiled. Mm-hmm. And in that top speed of Mach 0.94, you said that you read elsewhere that it actually exceeded the speed of sound during some testing. Yeah, it did. So apparently to be able to get that test, you know, that that certification limit, the 0.94 or whatever it is, they had to go over Mach 1, and they did. They, I think working with NASA or the Navy or somebody like that with Chase Airplanes, they put it in a dive, and they've got video of it. It's pretty cool. And yeah, they they actually exceeded Mach 1, which is amazing. This is, so it's based on the Global 7500, of course, that being 7500 nautical mile range. Bombardier CEO said basically customers were looking for more range, believe it or not. 300 nautical mile improvement over the Global 7500. It it reminds me a little bit of my kids. You know, it's like, you know, you give your kids what? You give them a cookie and they want five more, right? It's like, well, 7,500 miles isn't enough. That's a lot. 8,000, you know. Uh, Well, 8,000 will get you from Houston to Dubai, Mm -hmm. right? London to Perth. Singapore to LA. Amazing. I wonder stuff. if you could go from LA to Singapore, depending on the mm, winds. That's a good question. Yeah. Probably not. And they're saying, you know, that's typical loads. I mean, th- those aren't, you know, empty airplane, long range sort of crews. So it is an incredible machine, incredible. So it will, when it comes out in a couple of years, it will replace the 7500 as the as the flagship model. But there's good news for 7500 owners, right? Yes. They're yeah. Per- they don't need to invest the 70, what is it, 75, 78, 78 million? 78 million bucks. But they can yeah. get the performance enhancements of the Global 800 retrofitable to the Global yes. uh, 7500, which is, I think, $75,000. Maybe it's named the Global 7500 because it was 70, I'm sorry, not 75,000, 75 million dollars. Yeah, right. Maybe that's why I was why like, man, it's if it's 75,000, sign me up. I'll, <laughs> Maybe I'll that's why right it's 7,500. Yeah. No, we, it's 7,500 yeah. because of the range, but it, yes. it happens to be coincidental at 75 million bucks also. Yeah. And it's expected to hit the streets in 2025. Yeah. So it's a couple of years from now. And one other thing we, uh, that I would like to point out, it does have the lowest cabin altitude in its class at uh, 2,900 feet. And that, I think, is significant for passengers. I think mm-hmm. that's going to be a little bit better passenger experience and, um, and lead to some more comfort in the cabin. Yeah, it is amazing. I mean, you know, Gulfstream and Bombardier, they've become really fierce and, and good competitors. I think it's great for the super long-range, you know, ultra-long-range business aviation community. And these things are, I saw, I think I was telling you, I saw a, one of the globals, I don't know if it was the, well, whatever, one of the global models at an at a terminal, at an airline terminal up uh, to a jet bridge. And it looked like an RJ. I mean, the thing is so big oh, in bet. person. I was like, boy, is that an RJ or a charter or what it is? And then I saw, yeah, it's a global. And so these things are massive. It's a big airplane, but it's big yeah. and it's going places. So yeah. speaking yeah, right. of going places, yeah. should, should we be right back before we introduce our special guest and top story? Yeah, we'll be right back. All right. So, David, it is that time. I feel the need, the need for... I don't know. Just talk about Top Gun. <laughs> Let's talk about it. It's uh, the uh, the I really love the title, the headline of this, as real as it gets. Yes. And Zach Huffman uh, spoke to Kevin Larosa, who helped uh, coordinate 
almost like I, I guess all of the aerial mm-hmm. uh, stunts in this movie. So Top Gun Maverick, as we record this, Top Gun Maverick has just hit the movie theaters um, over the weekend. And there's a lot of hype. Now, you know, this movie was finished a couple of years ago and, and put on put on hold for the introduction because of the coronavirus. Yeah, man, don't I know it? Like, we had a uh, feature scheduled for the magazine for, well, for that long. It was like, I think, two years. Julie right, Walker had written right. this, talked to Kevin. Her her take was some of the actors, I think, learned to fly as a result of the movie. And actually, they the, did. Yeah. That so, was impressive. Um, this is a great story by Zach Huffman, uh, who, who traditionally has written a lot about drones for us. Um, well, Zach did interview uh, Kevin LaRosa, and Kevin is a real pilot. He's a pilot's pilot. Let's let's get that right right out off the bat, and so is Tom Cruise. In fact, we looked up mm-hmm. Tom Cruise's pilot credentials, and he has some real chops. He's um, you know yeah. a certificated pilot instrument commercial, and he's uh, able to fly in the L thirty seven. I'm sorry, L thirty nine Albatross. He's got yeah. a Honda Jet four twenty. So he's got real pilot credentials, a P-51 Mustang. So um, he was using some of those skills and some of his persuasive skills to coach the actors along from from left seat of a Cessna 172 up through an extra 300, which is mm-hmm. no slouch. I mean, that yeah. is a moving airplane. We have one here we've been able to borrow and show people how you can get out of unusual attitudes and how to do some light aerobatics in it just to introduce people to it. But that it, that's an airplane that you see at a lot of air shows doing aerobatics. Yeah. yeah. So it is a great story, you're right, because it covers really all the bases. So how they scouted the locations, the equipment they're using, which is fascinating, the L-39 uh, mm-hmm. with a stabilized camera. Albatross, L-39 yeah. Albatross. And you, what yeah. you can buy, by the way, I looked this up, you can buy one for about 400000 or less. You know, if, <laughs> if you've got the money to operate it by the hour, which I'm guessing is about five grand an hour to operate it. But, you know, those were sexy um, training aircraft when they came over from uh, from Europe, you know, maybe, what, 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. And I think you could have got them then as an importer for about $50,000, that L-39. But that yeah. L-39 that uh, Kevin outfitted, he they called it, I guess, the Cinejet, and, mm-hmm. uh, C-I-N-E, and has just outfitted – completely for video for you know air-to-air videos with a lot of modifications and i think he'll tell us a lot about that when we talk to him in a little bit yeah so and i guess the last thing i would say is they from the beginning wanted this to be a realistic thing right i think the production company tom cruise everybody was kind of on board with the idea that there was apparently a fair amount of cgi in the original movie which i guess i hadn't realized makes sense when you think back to it but and kevin even said he said if somebody walks out of the theater thinking this is cgi we've we've done an amazing job that's a compliment he was saying but it wasn't it was for real flying you know that's amazing to me that's amazing you know that that um that movie when it first came out was such uh a boon and you know it, it just got so many people involved in aviation they wanted to join the navy they wanted to be pilots I wonder if this one's going to do the same thing. Yeah, maybe. Well, we'll find out. So, yeah, see what Kevin has to say about it. Our guest today is a pilot certified in more than 25 aircraft, both fixed wing, rotary, and uncrewed, a member of the AOPA, the Screen Actors Guild uh, Society, and the Motion Pictures Pilot Association. His work has been featured in Iron Man, The Avengers, Transformers, CBS's SWAT, and a movie that has inspired generations of pilots previously and is coming back to the big screen here soon. It's the long-awaited sequel, Top Gun Maverick. Kevin LaRosa, welcome to the AOPA. Kevin, how's LA going for you? Thanks, Zach. Well, it's a beautiful day here in L.A., and uh, very excited to be on here with you. Thanks for having me. Hey, well, we are thrilled to have you joining us here. You know, Kevin, you have a long storied and long uh, history of aviation background. What inspired you to really get into aviation and and to get to where you are today? I'm a third-generation pilot, but I'm a second-generation motion picture stunt pilot and aerial coordinator. So I was a very fortunate young man to grow up in a household where my father uh, was a well-known Hollywood stunt pilot. 
And I was kind of immersed in that business from a young age. And I was lucky in that I knew exactly what I wanted to do since I was a little kid. All I wanted to do is be like my dad. So from a young age, basically to where I'm at now, it's been an unwavered goal of mine to become what I am today, which is a motion picture stunt pilot and aerial coordinator for the motion picture business. So what was it that, so, so you're on shoots with your dad, you're, uh, you know, going through this whole process of this cinematic storytelling from an aerial perspective that has consistently been evolving, but what was it that your dad was doing that really made you think, I want to do that. That's, that's the goal for me. Absolutely. I think it was the sense of, of creativity. You know, my dad's a, a true aviator uh, to the core, flying multitudes of different aircraft and watching him operate those aircraft was like second nature. And also seeing how he just invested himself in the projects he worked on, the creativity that went into that to make these these shots and these moves that people hadn't seen before or just make things dynamic and exciting. That was very interesting to me. So I, I love aviation just as much as I love film. And, you know, when you put those two things together, that's the perfect recipe for me. So thinking along those lines, then you, you work with your dad, you, you're on these shoots all the time and you have the option to, you know, you could have been an airline pilot. You could have been a, uh, you know, a helicopter pilot. You could, you know, you're out in LA, you could have been transporting, you know, people to different business meetings through the air. What kept you working in that industry? Well, I think it was just my unresounding drive to, to, you know, have that end goal to be a Hollywood stunt pilot like him. You know, since uh, I remember, you know, I used to drive his fuel trucks and I used to be his ground support guy and clean the helicopters and airplanes. So I always was involved in that type of operation. And it wasn't until, you know, I started building time or actually started flying on the movie sets. You know, my dad gave me an amazing piece of advice at a young age because I wanted nothing more than to do what he did. But he had recognized early on that, hey, you know, I'm Kevin LaRosa. My son's Kevin LaRosa Jr. And he will never be successful or trusted if he's just a junior, if he's just my son, he's going to have to go out in the world and be an aviator. He's going to have to get experience and fly lots of different aircraft, lots of different missions and become a well-rounded, experienced aviator to come back and be a stunt pilot. So as a teenager, he gave me the advice that no teenager wants to hear because I didn't want to leave what I was doing with him. And he said I needed to go do that very thing. And it was the best advice I've ever had in my life. So I I always kept my foot in the door with production stuff and I would, you know, work productions with him on my day offs, but I had real jobs. I flew traffic watch in downtown LA and a Cessna 172 five or six hours a day. I flew bank run contracts and helicopters transporting you know, checks and, and banking cash and stuff like that. At nighttime, there were cargo runs and helicopters. I flew news helicopters, medical helicopters. I did jet charter for a while. So I did all of these amazing jobs that I loved every one of them, but they were all very much so a part of my path to where I wanted to become. And it wasn't until I was about 26 years old and I ended up with about 4,000 hours total, I think it was, when I was able to make that leap of faith from having full-time aviation jobs to becoming an independent contractor for the motion picture business. And that's what I do today. So rainbows and butterflies now, but back then your dad kind of kicked you out of the nest and said, Hey, uh, you got to work your way up into this, this industry. What, at that time, what went through your mind? Well, I think, uh, you know, any hard headed teenager who knows everything, that's the last thing you want to do. You know, you're in love with this career that you've wanted to do since you were a little kid and you're involved in it to the extent that I'm going out on movie sets with my dad. But you know, the guy's my hero and I trust him and I took his advice and I'm glad I did. Because I don't think I'd be where I am today, and I wouldn't have the experience I have today, nor would I have the success in the industry that I'm in if I hadn't have taken that advice. I think having that that forethought of this is this is the goal I know I want to get to, which is in in any piloting industry or film industry is a big goal to where you're at today. But but having that at, at, at such a young age and knowing what it's going to take to get there is is such an admirable thing that most people don't have. Uh, the, the question I want to ask and, and pose from there is, is what got you through some of those tough days as you were trying to climb there and you're flying traffic watch for, you know, LA and, you, and you're, you're sitting on a plane or whatever it is. And you're like, I really don't enjoy this, but what got you through some of those tough, tough situations? You know, I have to admit, I thoroughly enjoyed every job I did. I never got burnt out on any of it. I mean, even when I was flying news helicopters in LA, there'd be days where we'd fly seven hour days in the helicopter and I just remember thinking, you know, how lucky I am. I'm flying turbine-powered helicopters with camera systems in the busiest airspace, you know, some of the busiest airspace in our country. And that experience to me was gold. 
And I think, you know, that's a testament to kind of my unwavered approach to where I wanted to go is that I knew those hard days, those long days, days where, you know, we'd have failures or mechanicals or whatever. That was all that was all experience that I was going to take with me that I would need for what I do today. So I, I absolutely enjoyed every mission I ever did. When I moved on from a mission, it was purely because I figured that, hey, I have the experience I need in this particular mission set. It's time for me to move to the next mission set. I My goal was to get to become a motion picture pilot, an aerial coordinator who was very well-rounded in experience. And I wanted to do jets and warbirds and helicopters and drones. And that's where I ended up today. I'm one of the few aerial coordinators in the world that does all of those platforms. And I'd like to say all of them proficiently. I'm training every platform that I fly every single year. So every mission I did, I loved. Everything I was doing was for an end goal, and that's that's exactly what I did. So, Kevin, this whole process, you know, 10, 15 years plus of flying to get to where you are, what would you define as kind of the, the, the turning point, you would say, in your career to, to where you are today? The turning point? I would say that another opportunity that was opened up to me, thanks to my father, was uh, I got linked up with a company called Wolf Air Aviation, and they're pretty notable, uh, and they've been around a long time. They operated a Lear 25B uh, as a camera jet. And they entrusted me to fly that aircraft and, and do air-to-air photography. And I was given the chance to learn from a, a very special gentleman, a veteran, and you know someone who was just in a fantastic, well-renowned, well-rounded pilot. His name was Tom McMurtry. And Tom taught me everything I needed to know about you know military-style briefing and debriefing and uh, risk management with jets and formation. And we did IFR formation and night formation and and really non-standard stuff in that aircraft. So while I was doing all these other jobs, I was flying this Wolf Air Lear 25, uh, basically on my days off. It was just, it, it was grinding and working. And I would say that that was a profound thing in my career because it allowed me to get to a point where I am today as, as a very experienced jet pilot. But not just a jet pilot, a jet pilot that's that's kind of tailored towards close formation and filming with you know aerial jet-to-jet assets. And that was that was a huge part of my career and the building blocks of what I've become today. So for a lot of the AOPA listeners out there, they're going to be understanding and cognizant of the terms in the aviation world and things like that. But when they hear maybe an aerial director or an aerial coordinator for film, that may be something that's kind of foreign to them. So for somebody who may not work in the media landscape, give us a 10,000 foot overview of, of really what it is you do. To the this most simplest you know, core of it all, I'm entrusted by the studios. I'm hired as an independent contractor for usually large projects to come in and read the script, read the creative, and help them put an estimate and a budget together. And most of the good customers I work for, they want to do things practically, which I love. That means more real aircraft and helicopters and jets and you know less CGI. So uh, I have a team of people I work with. We put together these budgets and estimates, and we also have to go wrangle the correct aircraft. And then depending on where we are in the world, sometimes we have to ship aircraft in or utilize aircraft in foreign countries. So all that's kind of part of what we do. We also have to work with those countries and get the permissions. In the U.S., we have to do very extensive plan of activities with the FAA. So everything we do is very above board and it's very highly looked over by the FAA. And we have to submit those plans of activities. Aside from that, I'm sort of in charge of the safety of the team. I assemble the team. I always say as an aerial coordinator and motion picture pilot, it's not necessarily me who's going to be doing the flying. Sometimes the studios trust me or always trust me to say, hey, the best person for that to fly that aircraft is this person and I'm going to bring him in. This is a this is an expert in that aircraft and that's the safest thing I can do. So it's not always me flying. A lot of time it's just me coordinating or directing that person to fly that air- aircraft. And then from there, it's it's overseeing the actual creative content getting done practically. And that's kind of what I love doing is, you know, we have storyboards and we have scripts and we have treatments. I love taking those things and turning them into real practical aerials. But I also say that the storyboards are kind of like the building blocks, right? Everything we do, we try to shoot better than it was dreamed of. And that's kind of, I think, what makes us unique and special. You know, we're always pushing the limits of creativity and we're not compromising safety when we do that. But I always have make an effort to kind of raise the bar every big project we do. What angles can I get? What things can we do differently that the audience has never seen before? And aside from that, it's, you know, completing the job and seeing it through all the way to the very end. So it's a it's a that's my favorite thing to do on the big projects. Start to finish, just like I did on Top Gun Maverick. 
all encompassing, just everything that's aerial. That's what I love doing. And sometimes we're just hired to show up and, and film some, some shots for the day as day players. But my favorite thing is really being immersed in the creative and helping make something, you know, magical. You know, there's so many different aspects there that we could dig and dive into. And I know we got to respect your time too, Kevin. So the, the first thing and the biggest thing that you mentioned there was, you know, the creative, uh, the creative side of it. What inspires your creativity when you, uh, when you are working on these big productions or even some of the smaller productions you're working on? That's pretty easy. What inspires my creativity. So it's a case by case of the project. So I try to immerse myself in the script or the treatment of what we're working on. Am I trying to make something look ominous and dangerous, um, dynamic or energetic? Or are we trying to sell beauty and gracefulness? So there's different feels for everything we do. So the first thing I do as an aerial coordinator is I try to immerse myself in the project. And that's really being in line with the director and the DP of, of whatever it is we're shooting. What are they looking for? What's their ideas? And for the DP, the director of photography, what's the look and feel of how they want it to shoot? Now, what I always say is as an aerial coordinator or, or camera pilot, I'm only doing half the job. The other you know, unsung hero in the aircraft with me is the aerial DP aerial director of photography. And I work with a handful of them. Um, there's one in particular, Michael Fitzmaurice, who I work with quite a lot. He's a pilot himself. But, you know, that's the person that's operating the gimbal and I'm putting the camera aircraft in the right spot. So it's this very well-organized choreographed balance that we do. And when you work with someone and you trust someone, it's they're just an extension of what you're doing. So, uh, for instance, with Michael Fitzmaurice, we almost don't even have to talk to each other. I know what he's looking at. He knows where I'm moving and we just kind of dance around the other aircraft. But to answer your question, every project's different. I think they're all unique. And what I enjoy doing is making sure we're always shooting it differently. I don't like cookie cutter burials of this is what we're going to do every single time. I think you always want to be raising the bar and you always want to be setting a new standard just to make things more edgy and kind of pushing the limits. Well, I'd have to imagine in those cookie cutter-esque, you know, shots. It gets boring and stale over time. So always spicing things up makes a big difference. But you mentioned uh, one of the people that you work with who controls the gimbal and the camera and kind of almost a coordinated dance, as you said. How long did it take to form that? And, and you know, what is really the driving force that makes the pair of you working together so well? It's uh, a good question. Well, I work with lots of different aerial DPs or camera operators, and we all work together great. But when you find that teammate, if you will, that you kind of jive with really good and trust and understand you kind of end up in this like i said it's it's more like a ballet it's just when we're in the aircraft together i have a sense or i already know how he's going to be operating that camera i know exactly where to be and what to be i mean something like if you were talking to mike fitzmaurice he would say hey kevin's just watching the monitor while he's flying and i almost never even have to tell him where to go and that's because we we know the shot we're doing and i know where i need to put the camera as if i'm flying the camera ship and that's that's pretty cool because then we can focus literally on the precision of the move instead of, you know, figuring it out together. So it's a, it's a pretty cool process and it's, it's pretty enjoyable once, once you work with good people and you get it in the groove. I think for a lot of listeners and, and viewers out there, they would, they would say that your work is kind of a big deal. Uh, and, and that may not feel like that to you, but, but what do you think of when you see your work out there? What comes to mind for you? Uh, it's super rewarding. And it doesn't even need to be the big projects. Uh, there's nothing cooler than seeing our movies come out in the movie theater. And, you know, you, we read comments or see things and people go, oh, that can't be real. That's CGI. That's actually the biggest compliment in the world is when something looks CGI. There's no way that could have been real. And, you know, that was real. We did that. Those airplanes are doing that. That's pretty fun. But, you know, even the, the sense uh, I feel, you know, even flying on airlines, I, I shoot a lot of airline photography for, you know, airlines such as Delta and United. And, you know, I get on these airlines and I sit in my seat and they play a little video in front of me and there's a bunch of air to air that I shot. And no one really thinks about it or looks at it, but I see it and it feels good. And um, it's very rewarding um, helping companies make their brands look amazing. And it's very rewarding being creative and helping, you know, movies and TV shows do some pretty cool stuff. We're, we're always very excited to be a part of it. You mentioned this a little while ago, talking about a lot of the safety mechanisms and working with the FAA and, and all of those things that, you know, all of the coordinating the orchestra per se to make all of this happen. Uh, I was looking, you know, obviously you've got a huge social presence on Instagram and, and uh, all of the work that you put out there, but you were recently flying through what looked like downtown LA uh, in a helicopter. You were coordinating that. I don't know if you were the pilot command there, but uh, how does somebody practice that? <laughs> That's a good question. There's there's no courses for that. 
There's nothing as a pilot. I don't think King School or even the AOPA <laughs> online is going to have something. Here's how you navigate between two skyscrapers and a helicopter. <laughs> no, and really what it comes down to is, and I was the pilot flying on that one. It's an interesting thing. It's just an experience that I've ended up with in my life. Uh, most of the flying I've done is very much so in close proximity to structures, in close proximity to other aircraft. I'm lucky and fortunate enough that I've flown with everything from 747s to B-2 bombers to all the fast movers in, in the Navy and Air Force inventory. So I think it's just a background thing that I that I was very fortunate enough to have. I also say, you know, in my industry with my aerial team, we practice excellence and repetition. And we also crawl, walk, run. And there's a lot to be said for that type of operating. What you saw on Instagram of me, you know, kind of ripping through the streets and, and buildings and stuff, that's not on the first take. And that's not even on the first day. There's usually a, you know, request that we make to rehearse a day ahead of time so we can fly in the daytime and check our, you know, tolerances and, and check our paths and know where all the obstructions are. And by the time we actually get into the groove to shoot the first take, we've already done half speed rehearsals and I got, you know, multiple ground pilots on the ground with an air to ground radio, you know, calling out distances. It's definitely not the wild west and it may look like, you know, cranking and banking around, but it is highly orchestrated. It's highly planned. If a position changes and I had to move that helicopter four feet to the right, it wouldn't be done on the fly. It would be done with a, a safety check before we actually do it. So it is, it is so orchestrated and so coordinated. By the time we do it, it's just this very precise thing that we operate through. So it's pretty cool. I mean, it's if you get a chance, check it out because the, the 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 content that you you create out there is, is absolutely amazing. You know, you see it on TV; it's one thing. When you see it being created and you know through the the, the eye of the person standing on the ground looking at you flying through these skyscrapers is is, is phenomenal. It's pretty incredible, actually. Thanks. There's a lot of things. I mean, recently we had a stunt where I had to land a, a little bird, an MD500 on a moving train and drop some people off. And, and that was a fun one. I remember getting the request and I'd, I'd landed on moving boats and, you know, put skids on top of moving buses and stuff. The train was a new one. And again, that's something you're not trained anywhere for that. You don't, it's nothing you go to a school for. It's just a, an experience. And as our job to make sure that that's done safely, that's something where we request a whole day to ourselves with the train and we you know start with the train doing zero miles an hour it's just parked and then we do it at 5 10 15 20 and you just build up into it to get into the groove and we never really compromise safety and then the time we actually do it on camera by the time we get there it's perfect it's precise we've done it a bunch of times we're practice we're rehearsed so that's how we train for a stunt as any stunt man or woman would do. They would train and rehearse until they have perfection. I mean, that's incredible. And, and some of those stunts are, are going to be seen in the new Top Gun film that's coming out. Kevin, when you get the call, uh, you know, Top Gun Maverick, uh, a sequel to a movie that inspired generations of pilots and not only in, uh, you know, just general aviation, but also to, to join the Air Force and other, you know, armed forces and, and, and whatnot. What does that mean to you? When, when they call and you're the one that's put not only in the cockpit, but on the ground and in so many, and you're, you're working with so many different celebrities and training them on what to do, what does that mean to you? It was a bit surreal. Growing up with Top Gun, I was born the year Top Gun came out in 1986, but I grew up with that movie and I've seen it probably a thousand times as a little kid. And I told you, you know, I was unwavered in my approach of what I wanted to end up doing as my professional career. And there was one little thing that almost got in the way, and that was Top Gun Maverick. I, I almost wanted to join the Navy and become a Navy, Navy, naval aviator, but I stuck with the path that I was on, and I'm glad I did. But it was it was very surreal, and it didn't you know didn't feel real until it got going. And my role on the movie grew as we continued filming. And originally, I just signed up to be the camera jet pilot, since I was one of the rare guys in the industry that did that type of filming. And my role grew on the movie until I just became the aerial coordinator of the entire movie. So that was pretty cool. I mean, in, and in retrospect, I definitely saw the movie coming. I'd worked with Tom on some other movies and we talked about it. I knew Top Gun was coming down the line. And I also knew I was in a good position as a camera jet pilot, one of the only ones in the world, position to work on the movie. And at the time, the equipment that was available in the industry was a little antiquated. And I knew that you know, this was going to be very special. It was going to be very unique and technology had evolved, yet we did not have a newer camera jet platform. And I remember I was laying in, in bed one night and I was trying to figure out what jet would be an amazing air-to-air -air platform. And I'd gone through tons of different jets and what was available in the U.S. and I ended up on the L-39. 
And uh, in this old program paint, I actually put a shot of Ref1 gimbal on this L39. I still have the picture in my phone. And that's what I created in the Cinejet, which is an L39, which is a platform that we used heavily on the movie, as well as a couple other jets, uh, camera jets, rather. So I started building the L39 before I even had Top Gun, because I knew that the project was going to need something very special, very unique and very modern. And the timing was was very serendipitous. It was it ended up being perfect that the jet was tried and tested. We actually did a job, a very cool job for Delta Airlines with the L-39 Cinejet prior to Top Gun. That was sort of the proof of concept to make sure it would work and be safe. And sure enough, the L-39 ended up on Top Gun Maverick and it did some phenomenal aerials. It did a great job on that movie. So that was very cool. From my understanding, you you were a heavy integral role in, in the safety coordination of all the flights and you know, working with not only industry professionals, but some of the biggest actors and actresses in the business. You know, as you're the one coordinating a lot of this for the people that you see on camera, what kind of went through your mind as you went through that process? The one thing I would tip my hat to here, well, many things, but you know, Tom and the producers in the production studio were very keen on making sure that the talent was prepped and ready. And not only that, that they were gonna really look like aviators, be aviators. And we basically put this very comprehensive program together at the request of Tom and approved by Tom and managed by him that started out with us training the actors how to fly in 172s. It was my dad and I kind of took that on. And then we graduated them into an extra 300. That was from my friend Chuck Coleman came in and that got them into G tolerance and pulling, you know, you know, G fatigue and just making sure that they were ready for that. And then we moved them into the L39 with my good friend, Randy Howell, who owns the Patriot Jet Team. And by that time, we graduated them into the F-18s. And by the time they got into the F-18s, they were pros. They knew where to look, knew what to feel, knew what to say. And that's a huge testament to the production company and to Tom to spend that expense and to go through the effort to do that. And I think it just it shows so well on camera. So I was heavily involved in that. And obviously, the DOD, there was a, a Navy captain that was put in charge of the movie, a good friend of mine, Brian Ferguson, call sign Ferg. So he was kind of entrusted by the Navy to take care of the movie. He was the ultimate responsibility of what we did and didn't do. I worked with him on, on you know, a daily basis. And every day we were briefing prior to our flight. It was usually about an hour and a half or two hour briefing. We would have debriefs, usually about two sorties a day. And there was a lot going on. And, you know, I had the responsibility of making sure that you know, I flew the jet and the helicopter, the camera helicopter jet in there, but also running the briefs with the Navy, with the actors, with our creative team, with, you know, our producers and directors and DPs, ran the debriefs, kind of overall safety of all the missions and also paying attention to the creative. So the movie was a, a wild adventure for me. It's, it's probably will always be one of my most favorite projects that I'll ever get to work on. And I'm so excited for the world to see it. One thing I'd like to just put into perspective for the AOPA community, when they see a scene that is taking place on Top Gun Maverick or, you know, really any production, that scene may only be five to 10 to 15 seconds of dogfighting or, you know, a, a jet coming in and landing or something. And you may not even be able to quantify this, but how much training goes into that one cut that takes place just for 15 seconds of film. A lot of times it's even less than that. I mean, you might see a clip of two or three seconds on the big screen of an F-18 ripping past a snow-peaked mountain. What's interesting to know to kind of quantify that is the months ahead of time that went into scouting that particular location, which was usually me in a helicopter with our scouting team and our directors trying to find the best looking terrain we could find and then shoot it in the best light we could find and then there were rehearsal flights and there's briefings to get that. And we probably, you know, shot that sequence maybe 10 or 12 times until we got the perfect take. So every single clip, every single, you know, move, aerial move you see in that movie, so much thought went into the process to make sure that every single sequence we did was the most dynamic, energetic and, you know, breathtaking aerial we could get. We did not want to settle for anything less than that. So painstaking process, but extremely rewarding. And, uh, I mean, it's incredible. And and I'm excited to see the film. I know so many other people across the world are. What does it mean to you that you are playing a role in the, the inspiration of the next generation of, of aviators, potentially? What does that mean to you? It's a very humbling and, and, you know, I'm a very patriotic person. And I know that just like the first movie, that this movie will have a profound impact on the next probably 
three, four generations of naval aviators and aviators in around the world, really, not just in the U.S. I mean, it's a the movie you know you've heard them say is a love letter to aviation, and I think we we do that amazingly. We capture the love of flying and the beauty of flying, but then you know the the visceral feel of you know riding on these F-18s and the way they're flowing is is pretty incredible. So I think even non-aviation folks are going to be blown away by what they see and probably have a new appreciation for what our naval aviators do. Kevin, some may say this is the, the pinnacle of a lifelong career and you're still a young guy. So what's next? What's the what's the next barrier for you? What's the next hurdle you're ready to tackle? I was fortunate enough after Top Gun Maverick to uh, be called upon to work on another great naval aviation movie. It's a, a true story. And there's an amazing book written by Adam Makos about this true story called Devotion. And this was a very fun project for me. It'll come out later this year from Black Label Media. And this follows the life of, uh, of two naval aviators in kind of a trying time during the Korean War. And for this movie, we brought in Corsairs and Sky Raiders and MiG-15. So it was a very different feel than Top Gun. But that's, like I said, I love immersing myself in whatever story I'm working on. So I got to follow up Top Gun with another major aviation movie that'll be out this year. So that was very fun. But I'd say for me, you know, we, we never we never stop. You know, I kind of believe when you stop innovating, you, you die. So Top Gun will probably be a you know huge milestone in my career. One of the coolest things I've ever been part of working on. But we have some very cool camera platforms in store for the future. And uh, we're always trying to push technologies for the next big movies so we can set the bar even higher. Where do you see specifically the the cinematic aviation industry heading? Is it more, you know, remote, uncrewed aircraft type stuff? Is it more specialized helicopter, more jets? Where do you see it going? It's a good question. You know, with the influx of drones, you know, I was lucky enough. I've done RC aircraft, remote control my whole life, flowing helicopters and giant scale warbirds. I used to race RC aircraft. So we've always been involved in model aviation. And that's why I got into the drone flying as well very early on. We, we were lucky enough to have worked on lots of really great movies and TV shows with our drones. And now I have excellent drone teams that, that fly for me on jobs as well. But I would say this, especially on the cusp of Top Gun Maverick, I think the world and I think production companies can see that practical stunts and practical aerial sequences are breathtaking and, and kind of mind boggling sometimes. And I think there's going to be a push, which is going to be well received, I think, by the general public to make things more realistic and, you know, more in cockpit, more practical. And that's that's what Top Gun Maverick brings. It, it's it's like I said, it's this thrill ride for the viewer. And to know that everything they're looking at on the screen is real is, is a very cool feeling. And I think the next movie I did, Devotion, kept that same methodology they wanted things practical. They wanted things real. And I love that. You know, there's certain things we can't do, obviously, but everything that is possible, we figure out a way to do it. And that's what's fun for me. How can I, how can we accomplish this crazy shot in the safest way possible and, you know, make it look unbelievable so people question whether it's real or not? That's what's really cool. So to answer your question, I think that these two big movies are going to really push and drive home the fact that practical stunts, practical aerials are very exciting and well worth it. Awesome. You know, at the at the very beginning of our discussion, I said, you know, more than 25 aircraft, everything from a Cessna 152, you're certified into to Learjets, Bell helicopters, Eurocopters, the list goes on and on, you know, C-130s, the whole nine yards. What has been your most memorable aircraft to fly in? It's it's the P-51 Mustang. I was, uh, I was very lucky enough to grow up in a kind of a Warbird family. My dad owned a T-28. He owned a T-6 for a while. He owned a P-51 Mustang, and it was a beautiful P-51. I, I probably spent the better part of my teenage years polishing that thing every weekend. And uh, we don't own it anymore, but I used to fly that airplane with him all the time as a young kid. And I sort of look back on it now, and I might have taken it for granted. I was just young, but knowing that I was, you know, flying around a P-51 Mustang with my dad is just, uh, it's, it's a great memory. We have tons of great pictures. But there's nothing that sounds better than that Rolls Royce Merlin and the smell that thing makes when you start that thing up with that, uh, you know, huge 12 cylinder motor. So the Mustang is is my favorite aircraft in the world. And I don't think there's anything that looks better or sounds better. That's my favorite plane. Thinking of that, is there a flight that stands out to you or a shoot that you've been a part of that stands out? And you're like, you know what, I 
it's one of my favorite. That one has a spot in the memory bank for the rest of my life. There's, there's some, well, there's lots of cool shoots. I, I would say one that I'll, I'll never forget is getting to do some very exciting close air formation with the B2 bomber. I was selected by uh, Northrop Grumman and uh, Wolf Air at the time we were flying that Lear 25B and actually had to go to Whiteman Air Force Base and get some special training on how to fly with that airplane. It's a very non-standard airplane to fly with. One of the most notable things for, for pilots who do formation work is, you know, usually we have this big side of the aircraft, the fuselage and the vertical fin and the engines, and we really can use that for our depth perception. And I was told, hey, when you fly with the B-2, your depth perception is not going to be what you're used to. It's the airplane looks very thin and small when you're right next to it. But man, when it turns into you or turns away from you, that airplane becomes very big. And it's a little hard to judge your depth perception. When I actually got to fly out the airplane, it was pretty impressive. And, and that very thing, you, you tuck right in on the wingtip of that thing and go, okay, well, this, this isn't too hard. This is pretty cool. And when you put that thing in a turn, man, that airplane gets big fast. So it's just a, it was a different dynamic than I was ever used to. And the pilots were amazing, and, and we did some really fun stuff on that flight. And I think the B-2 photo flight is something I'll never forget. So it really sounds like, Kevin, there's been a, a huge team of people that have supported you across this journey to getting to where you're at. Absolutely. I would be nothing without the friends and family and colleagues that gave me the experiences that I got. I wouldn't be what I am today. When you look back, say, 20, 30 years from now, what is it that you hope people will remember? I would say that I hope people remember me for obviously, you know, always making sure I'm taking care of my team with safety first, but just this unresounding effort to show the beauty of aerials and push the limit of aerial creativity beyond what's been done in the past. And that's, I think, what I strive for every single job, every single shoot, is I, I don't want to settle for just okay. I want to really figure out ways. I want to use new technology and I want to use, you know, new tools to push the limits of aerial photography beyond what we've seen. And that's, that's kind of my lifelong goal. And, you know, I'm 36 years old right now. I'll probably be doing this for another 30 years, which, which I'm excited about and I can't imagine ever stopping, but that I believe would be my biggest goal. Kevin, you said push the limits. Why is that? It's simple. I mean, when I say push the limits, you know, we, we always work inside our box of safety. We don't, we don't push the limits beyond stuff. And I, my favorite saying when we're flying or briefing is if there's doubt, there's no doubt. And then of course that means if there's any doubt that something we shouldn't be doing something, you don't do it. However, there's so many ways to be unique and different and think outside the box from what's been done before and learn lessons from what worked before. You know, it's, it's really about not only using your subject aircraft or your camera aircraft, but it's about the background. It's about the speed differential. It's about the lighting. There's so many factors that go into it for being a really good camera pilot. And I would say, when I say pushing the limits and basically saying everything we've done in the past is the building blocks to keep, for lack of a better term, pushing the limit of, of what we have or have not done or seen. And I think that's, that's something I always want to do is, is shoot something that we haven't seen before. More than 25 aircraft, work featured in the Avengers, Iron Man, Transformers, and a feature film, Top Gun Maverick, that is going to hopefully inspire generations to come. I know I can't wait to see it. Kevin, thanks so much for coming here to the AOPA, being willing to talk with us and, and share all of your pilot experience. Thanks, Zach. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. So, David, the big question is, have you seen the movie yet? I'm going to see the movie next Friday night, Ian. I haven't seen it yet. I'm pretty okay. psyched about that. How about you? I haven't either. I'm I'm excited. I may wait for it to come on video. I should say video. On streaming? On whatever? I'm not waiting. No. No way. No way. Popcorn and, and I'm under, uh, hopefully it's, it'll be at a draft house. So popcorn <laughs> and a beer or a, a glass beer, yeah. of wine for me. <laughs> no flying after that. Just armchair flying. I was going to say, yeah, you watch other people fly while you're having your beer. Yeah. No, I'm psyched about it. I think it's going to be awesome. I really do think that it's going to elevate aviation again, mm -hmm. pun intended. And I'm really looking forward to it. We're trying to get a group of folks here at AOPA to all go watch the show together. So that would be kind of fun. Very cool.
All right. Well, hey, that's all the time we have for this week. Thanks for listening to our very special 150th episode. Check us out, remember, on YouTube for the first time. I'm Ian Twombly. Our editor is Austin Hansen. And I'm David Toulis. Don't forget, you can find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk if you're only listening to it via podcast. And Ian, putting you on the spot before we leave, do you remember the very first episode, who the guests were, or what we talked about? I want to say, and I'm not cheating, this is really from memory, I think it was Chris and Dave for Burning Man. From Burning Man, right, right. Yes. And two of the top stories we talked about 150 episodes ago were FAA reauthorization okay. and the AFD going away. Oh my gosh, how about that? We've come a long way in 150 episodes. Thanks to all of our listeners uh, yes, so far. Thank you. Hopefully we'll get some new viewers as well, but we've enjoyed being with you all so far. We're not going anywhere, but we are going to... Do a little more video, maybe, if we can can get the technology together. It sounds like we did. That's right, yeah. (laughs) If we didn't annoy people too much, that's right. (laughs) All right, we'll see you next time, David. Thanks. See you next time, Ian. Hangar Talk from AOPA. Your freedom to fly.